BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Here, Mark. Here, Simon. That's too loud. That's too loud. Is it okay? I have to do the whole of the show like this. It might get very annoying, but I do have to speak very quietly today. Do we do we both do we both have to speak very quietly no, today? No, you can speak at any volume you like, but I see now you can see because we can see each other because you're still in Narnia, I'm still in London. The wall behind me, the one with the yeah. Hitchcock poster on, the other side of that very mm. thin wall, Child Three is actually taking an exam, a university exam, on Chaucer. Well, right now. So, yeah, right at this very moment, yes. So I can't really Chaucer. speak very loudly. And he yeah, let the Fred, Fred, Fred Chaucer. Fred Chaucer, yeah. There was a worthy man withal. <laughs> All that. I, can't, I mean, obviously, I, can't, I don't want to be a huge distraction to the child. So that's probably counts as cheating. If you just recite it loud enough, he can hear you through the what? Is it an open book exam or is it? It is. It is, is, it, it, is a, an open, it is open book. Yeah. Oh, so he doesn't, he doesn't need to be cheating then because he's actually got the text in front of him. In fact, funnily oh, enough, with on. the, I had a conversation with, your child who is currently doing an exam about exactly this on the subject of um, the, uh, the Canterbury tales, a film of Canterbury tales, which includes the, the, uh, the sequence of the monks being farted out of the devil's bum. And uh, it's the Miller's tale, I think. And it's, as we said, a film so bawdy that it features Robin Asquith. And (laughs) I had to say to him, ask your dad who Robin Asquith is, but after after we played a clip from it on um, Secrets of Cinema, Robin Asquith is, is on Twitter. And now Robin Asquith and I are Twitter pals, really? which I think is a lovely does, thing. Yeah. Does he still walk around <laughs> having unexpected adventures? <laughs> I think the I think the unexpected adventures are behind him, but he's a he's a jovial presence on Twitter. Excellent. Well, that's that's very good to know. Anyway, so I'm not going to be too raucous because oh, now, you know, we, now we're talking gen- normally, are we? Okay, fine. Well, I do, you know I can't keep that going. It's just that he might hammer on the on the wall and say, "Would you?" Well, you can know, we be honest? Okay, you've been doing a radio program, right? And there've been plenty yes. of times when Child Two, who's on the other side of that wall, hasn't. Let's be honest, kept the noise down. And in fact, True. even since I've started doing this program, Child One has very loudly come in through the front door and demanded to know where something is. So, you know, let's just behave. Should let's just behave. Like, Should we do a live uh, exam update? Would this be yeah, yeah, in the yeah. rules? I, who cares? Go on. I'm sure it'll be fine. Okay. Oi, child three. <laughs> I'll go and bang on the wall. Hang on. Yeah, go on. <laughs> child three. <laughs> Sound of movement. Is he? Has he fallen asleep? How's it going? It's going all right. Just say, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. Fine, you can go now. He let the flea of fun. There's there's an exam update. Go, go. Hi, Mark. Go. Hi. (laughs) I knew that wasn't very wise. (laughs) It's going all right. He said. Yeah, he seemed. He seemed in quite good spirits. All things considered. Yes. Although, actually, honestly, kids today, don't know, they got, don't know, they're boring. Open book exam. <laughs> I know. Anyway, can I say, later on in the programme, um, I will be taken to task by a celebrity 
and it's on this email here, but we'll, we're, really? we're coming to that. Yes. Hang on, hang on. A, a proper celebra a celebrity or a sub-celebrity, as somebody referred to me? No, no. This is not just any celebrity. In fact, you could say he is he's the man of the moment. There oh, I know what you're referring to. Okay, yeah, yes. yeah, there's no, yeah, yes. there is. When people, when people realise who it's from, they will always think of this time. They it's will. And he's For better been in touch or worse. and he has a few things to say. Anyway, we'll, we'll be building up to that as an exciting <laughs> moment. Are you going um, to do an impression of his voice as you read the email? Because I think, because I know who you're talking about, and I think that, that you should try and do it you should try and read the, the read the email as he would have as he would have voiced it. Stay at home, protect the NHS. <laughs> That's that it, exactly, yeah, yeah. Okay. Look, but but although somehow when you do it, it sounds creepy and threatening, but when he does it, it sounds authoritative. Okay. Stay at home. <laughs> Anyway, uh, and anyway, stay at home is now only applicable in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, and not in England. So it gets very confusing, and I'm not going to even go anywhere uh, near any of that. So, interesting email from Paul, mm -hmm. which features live Welsh pronunciation. Uh, Dear Anaren and Gethin, just on your discussion about motherland and fatherland, oh, which yes. we were talking about the last couple of weeks. We, we do have a reference to them in the UK. The Welsh national anthem openly refers to it in the title. And the, the Welsh title is uh, My Herrn Wullard Vernedai, which is Land of My Fathers. Land of My Fathers. Apologies, yeah. apologies for the uh, bad pronunciation. Although not specifically written as a national anthem, it gained rapid popularity, invoking as it does a yearning for self-identity in Wales in the late 19th century and became the de facto national anthem through usage at rugby events in around 1905. Yet more London Narnia bias. Uh, anyway. <laughs> it's interesting, though, that, that that thing about how things that aren't actually the national anthem become the national anthem. Because it's like um, in the Isle of Man that, you know, my own dear Ellen Van Inn with its green hills by the sea. Is this no, that we don't sing? know that. What is what is that you're singing? No one knows that. Then arises like a vision shining no. bright in nature. No. Well, it's it's what I would refer to as the Manx national anthem, but it's not the Manx national anthem. It's the thing that you sing, but actually the Manx national anthem is the da 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 dum ba da da ding dong, and it's just it's kind of all over the shop. And yeah. and and the thing that everyone sings, the my own dear Ellen, isn't isn't actually the national anthem, although it it is the national anthem. I mean, it isn't, but it is. Put it this way: every time I've been to a thing which involves everyone standing up and singing, they've all sung my own dear Ellen Van Inn with its green hills by the sea. And my mother always used to get very because I'd say, no, "Mum, sing the proper one," and she'd go, "Why? Because I don't like the tune." Da 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 da. Today it's all just like shonky shonky, and it's. No, I, I might be. I might be being a rule and wrongly. Go on, uh, Paul, who you is from Wales, though actually in exile in Sunderland. Now, I I would pedantically think that land of my fathers is not the same as fatherland and motherland because historically, when people talk about Mother Russia or the fatherland, it has some kind of mythic and legendary. Uh, quality it almost implies some kind of authoritarian state i think or some kind of strange so land of my fathers or land of my mother's that's fine that means one thing but the fatherland i think i agree with you i think that i think i think land of my fathers is different to the fatherland it feels different i think i know this is <laughs> this is sort of a small print business anyway it, um 
Jerome O'Callaghan, who's in Syracuse in New York. If Long we stop term, doing small print business, we are out of business, Simon, that's true. all right? We only do. We only do this. And, and to be honest, there isn't a lot of large print left, is there? So small print is all we've got left. <laughs> it's just it's all there is. Jerome is a long-time listener, second-time emailer, and art house lurker <clears throat> back in the day. Excuse me. I have the great honour of being dad to a smart and handsome 17-year-old going by the name of JJ, who at this point... It's not quite a name, really. But anyway, who at this point in May should be graduating high school, as they say in the US. We live in upstate New York. This term has presented a bunch of difficulties, this term, uh, for all the members of his graduating class. On top of that, JJ missed a few weeks due to illness. So the last two months of preparing for finals and other high stakes tests has been very stressful. He's borne the burden very well and pushed his way through all the time, longing for some hanging out with buddies time. The big ceremony, the dance, the parties all been postponed, which is a tough one on a 17-year-old. As we approach the end of May, I'm thrilled to say he's completed all his obligations, uh, academically speaking, got the good grades and is graduating. Despite one thing and another, we're hoping for a traditional fall term, Deo Valente, says Jerome, which I imagine is God willing. Okay. We are so immensely proud of his dedication, intelligence, discipline. A shout out from your good selves will be the icing on the cake. Um, down with the virus, up with the nurses, doctors and frontline folk. <clears throat> so I'm a bit froggy today. <clears throat> Very attractive. So anyway, well done to JJ and everybody else who's struggled through and is still in the process of struggling through. Struggling through. Exams. <clears throat> when you say when you say JJ is not really a proper name, you didn't say that to JJ Abrams, did you? You didn't say oi. No, but what kind know. of name is JJ? Hang well, on one second. Yeah. Hold on one second. Child yeah. two currently on air. Thank you. God, what is it with children? I mean, I children know, just, I just... <laughs> always going on about something or other. <clears throat> um, how would you pronounce a first name which is L O A M? Is that Loam or Loam? <clears throat> I, I mean, you're asking. I mean, I'm the mispronunciation king of the world. I would go for. Where's it? Where? Where is? Is no wh idea. Where are they from? Oh, Norwich. Norwich. Loam in that case. Loam, okay. Loam tree boy. Oh, no, no, no. But so they so, so go halfway. You go sort of non-committal. Loam, like like that. Okay. Um, Mr. Treeborn. Loam. Is it Mr. Loam? Okay, Loam. I don't know. Oh, who cares anyway? Being an audio music producer by oh, trade. Who cares? She cares. Okay. I have come to appreciate Simon's mic technique worship recently, as I have been applying the same degrees of meticulousness when applying for online voiceover jobs. These will naturally require pristine voice recordings, displaying sterling diction and understanding of mic recording. I was revisiting some Frank Zappa last night, and it occurred to me that he could possibly have unintentionally been one of the early innovators for what is now a rising trend in ASMR videos on YouTube. As you may have heard, ASMR stands for Autonomic Sensory Meridian Response. This is a, because this is me reading the definition, a tingling sensation which typically begins on the scalp and the back of the neck and then to the spine. Okay. I know can vaguely be... about this because, oh, because Peter's, no, just because Peter Strickland, who made um, In Fabric, which I loved, which came out last year, 
Um, and he was talking about Peter Strickland's got a really interesting attitude to, to you know, to sound construction. And I, and I have literally just yesterday the vinyl of uh, In Fabric arrived here, which is great because it's got the most brilliant soundtrack by um, Cavern of Antimatter. I know you've been playing all their banging hits. Um, and what he kind of, said, "Never mind, that, JJ. What, what? Who's that done? Who's done the soundtrack? Cavern of Antimatter. Is that is they're that fantastic." Name? Is it them or a, or a person? It's not just noises that I'm making. Yes, they're called cavern of antimatter. Anyway, the, the, if I, the point about this is that when I was talking to Peter Strickland about the film, he said that one of the things about In Fabric, which is, is that he got, he just, he said, you, you go down this rabbit hole of ASMR. And I said, what on earth is ASMR? And he said, video, it, it's basically, it's like, whispering or people stroking velvet or just tiny tiny and he said and it gives you this sort of weird tingling sensation this was a like a, a you know a, um a uh well i suppose a year and a half whenever in fabric came out i'd never heard of it before and i remember i when i had when i reviewed it for the observer i wrote asmr and i didn't rather than i just put google it so it's auton- autonomic, autonomic say, sensory meridian response can be induced in some individuals who are exposed to delicate sounds such as whispering, tapping, scratching, crinkling. Simon's Ray Winston yeah. intros spring to mind. Apparently, is that, is that anyway? The resulting can be a rapturous, spine tingling, soporific sensation. Not everyone is necessarily receptive, though, and sometimes new exposees might just find it weird. Anyway, here's the little bit of the Frank Zappa that Loam is talking about. I'm not getting I'm not getting a tingling sensation. No, me neither. Just, just sounds like Frank Zappa whispering over something. Yes. Anyway, I like to there's think a, there's a says Loam that because Zappa was such an innovator, he might have stumbled across this technique without quite knowing what it was at the time. Anyway, we haven't talked about ASMR before, so there's a first. There's a thing on um uh, Zinger by the Comsat Angels, which I know again is another banging tune that, that you'd be spinning. On, on Zinger, what's that? Zinger, it's a song called Zinger, which is oh. a banging tune by the Comsat Angels off their um third album, Fiction. I know it's a firm favorite of yours, in which Stephen Fellows does this thing about whispering the line as he says, um, how does the line go? A twist of electricity is sometimes a surprise. But a glimpse of the future is always a surprise. I flew and I always remember listening to that and thinking, <laughs> what did you say? I flew through a crack in the clouds where all year round happiness, something, something, something. Yeah, so what's that from? I recognise that. Hole in my shoe by traffic. Anyway, hole in my shoe. So, that's what it is. Sorry, imagine. So Bob Harris. <laughs> Bob sorry. Harris is like a walking <laughs> ASMR machine. <laughs> that's what he does, basically. Anyway, that was a very strange little hole that we went down. Thanks, Lower. We're almost ready to join the rest of the country live. Um, 
but uh, before before we do that, just a final a final email for this uh, excellent part of the program from Richard Wilkinson, who's in Paris. I'm not sure how long I've been a listener, but I remember listening to you when my children were in prams in the early 2000s. For all this time, I've been living in France, and you two have served as the quote replacement chat at the pub service. End of quote. You're also, you've also served as the English-speaking entertainment during every weekend car trip where my children have quietly pretended not to listen for almost two decades. So thank you. <laughs> Last September, I had my Winnie the Pooh moment where, as a very proud father, we took Sophie to Holland to start the rest of her life. However, what with one thing and another, we've been back together for the last couple of months for an Indian summer of family life, something no new adult should suffer. I think we should have a second thought for all of those... Uh, who uh, whose aborted start to new lives have meant that they have had to re-suffer dad jokes, unsolicited comments on clothes and daily monitoring of wake-up times. This Friday, I'm going to be doing a remake of the Winnie the Pooh moment and saying goodbye again for a second time after dropping Sophie off in Leiden before driving alone across Europe along empty motorways with only my two pub mates for company. That's us. Wow. So if I can have a quick was up from my drinking friends and a quick reminder... That all will be all right in the end, even what with one thing and another. I'd be very grateful, says Richard Wilkinson. Uh, so anyway, so I hope I hope that the, the journey across the autobahns and the motorways uh, of Europe are going fine, and that Sophie was quite cool, and so are you, and all that jazz. Yeah, but imagine having to go through that twice. I mean, you're right about everyone having to suffer the dad jokes twice, but imagine having to go through that twice. We'd yeah, never well, imagine, imagine being sort of in your 20s and having to move back with your parents. You know, that's uh, that's what my kids are suffering from. Anyway. <laughs> should, we, uh, should, we, should we get on? Because I think it's time to, to join the nation uh, live on Five Live and also to reveal the mystery identity of our um, super celebrity who's telling me off. So we need to do that. Yes, I think that, I think that's a very good idea. Okay, all right. So I'll see you on the. I'll see you on the on. What do you, did I see you on the other side? No, see you on the other side of the veil. I like. I like. You know, one thing I like about about the way that we have. You know, we're you know, hundreds of miles apart, and it's kind of complicated. But I do like the fact that we do the beginning at the beginning, and the end at the end. Because everything's because all can, right I, I, at the end. It is all right. Okay, we'll just take a quick break while I'll. Tell everybody to be quiet on the other side of that door and you can go and harass your exam taker. Let me flee a fault. A worthy man withal. Hello and welcome to another episode of Wittertainment. Can we just make it very, very clear that although this is going to be a totally tip-top, hang-dang-doody kind of programme and we're here for an hour and a half of top film chat... Neither Mark nor myself are physically in the Five Live studio. So although we encourage lots of communication uh, to go to mayo.bbc.co.uk, uh, we're not reading them out uh, live because uh, we're not here. Isn't that right, Mark? Yeah. Just looking to you for it a limited comment. Because if you're listening to this now and you send an email, I mean, we're probably, we're probably off doing something else. I mean, not very much because we're still housebound or garden-bound. Are you getting out into the garden? Might be in the garden having a nice glass of fizzy water with a slice of lemon because it's a Friday. It's that a... <laughs> is decadence. So I said to you the other day, have you resorted to drinking during the week? And you went, of course. I, I was so relieved to hear you hear well, that. We had to do the thing. We had to do the thing the other day, right? It's every, I think it's every two weeks here now of uh, you have to put the bottles out, right, for the bottle recycling. Yes. We had two 
two containers. It's so embarrassing that I, I I'm next. I'm not even. I'm going to put them out after dark. It's so embarrassing to put them out in the light. It's like saying, "Look, we've just been sloshing in alcohol. That's how we're getting yeah. through this." Well, I think I, I might have mentioned this to you before, but I have heard. This is not me making it up. I have heard people of taking advantage of the eight o'clock clap on the Thursday night when the street is making a noise. Use that time to put your empties in the recycling because no one will notice. <laughs> that's what you do. That's what you do. So you clap and then you chuck out the bottles. Okay, it's all. Oh, they're making a lot of noise. They're being very supportive. No, he's just putting the empties away. That's that's the way it goes. Now, look before we I go any further. I got sent. I got sent. Go to, I'm just going. I got sent a joke. By my um, by my by my friend and my neighbours here, Mike, who sent me a joke, which said, "Today we will be clapping for delivery workers sometime between eight twenty-five and four twenty-seven. Very good. I like that. He's a funny guy, is Mike. Funny Before guy. we go any further, I need to apologise, um, particularly for all German-speaking listeners, for last week. All of them. All of them. <laughs> anyone, of anyone listening to this program who is vaguely fluent in German. Um, I <laughs> got it. I got this email um, from the man of the moment, the voice of 2020, who is, of course, Mark Strong, uh, who the reason I'm calling him that is because, of course, he is the person quite correctly given the gig to voice all the announcements about COVID-19 and what the government advice is, uh, because he speaks with authority and gravitas. So he, he said... <laughs> He sent me this email. In fact, lots of other people have pointed this out. Uh, so this is from Mark Strong. And we were talking about stop or my mum will shoot. Okay. So at the top of this email, it says, subject, stop oder mein mama schießt. Hi, Simon. <laughs> Loving the show as ever. And particularly in... Uh, actually, he has good mic technique, doesn't he? So that's good. He does. Go on. This is a message from the government. Stay at home. <laughs> anyway, I won't do that. So here we go. Subject, stop or mind mama, she's Simon. Loving the show as ever and particularly enjoying listening today. The above does actually mean stop or my mum will shoot. What you actually said when you said it out loud, however, was stop or mind mama, scheist, which means stop or my mum will. <laughs> my half Austrian heritage means I speak German, and I just thought you should know. Very best to you and Mark. And I seem to remember thinking when I said it that that felt a little strong. But, you know, it's an I-E, not an E-I. That's E-I. how it can confuse a stupid person. So a stop, you'd think it might have said halt. But anyway, stop at a minor, mine mama schist is what it should have been. I apologise for getting it wrong. But thank you for the correction. I do think that your version of the title is funnier than the original. <laughs> I mean, I would pay to see. I would pay to see a film which was called "Stop or My Mum." It's a whole different film, know. isn't it? You, you, you have it's to stop. It's a whole or, different film. It's a whole other. Well, that's what my mother will do, and you don't want to see that, do you? Starring Sylvester Stallone. Stop, or that's what my mother will do. Do. Very good. There you go. You see, can, you know. Thank you. You're a tabloid that's writer it. at heart. That's I, the truth of it. I take that back. Here is a here is a here is a thing from Gudjon who says, uh, "Doctors, just thought I'd send you a short line from Iceland to give you an update on our situation. 
We have managed to flatten the curve and are gradually coming out of our ban on mass gatherings and returning to some semblance of normalcy after one thing and another. Primary schools, which is 6 to 15 year old here, were opened up on May the 4th. Swimming pools next Monday and our football will start in mid-June because it's a summer league here for obvious reasons. You know, snow, the cold and such, (laughs) says Goodyear. There's an awful lot of such there. But I thought I'd share with you that the cinemas were opened on May the 4th as well. Fitting to do so on Star Wars Day. Of course, there are limits to the numbers of persons per screen. 50 at the moment, more from next week. The selection of movies is the same as before everything stopped, but hopefully we'll get to see the new Christopher Nolan film in July as planned. Till then, one cinema is offering all his old movies in the lead-up to the new one. I think I'll take in Inception and send you a lobby correspondence then, which would be a very nice thing. I hope it will be not long until other countries are able to open their societies again and you'll be inundated with lobby correspondence. Until then, tinkety-tonk and down with SARS... Cov 2, which makes it sound like an inferior follow-up to SARS-CoV-1, whereas actually <laughs> SARS-CoV-2 is a much stronger, uh, unfortunately. It's um, the aliens to alien, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So on the so this is an interesting thing. So this is about the opening up of cinema. Here's another eyewitness account from Tom, long-term listener, second-time emailer, currently writing from the other side of the world in New Zealand, where due to current events, I've found myself for longer than anticipated. The reason for this email is fairly straightforward, but also at the moment potentially quite surprising. I've just been to the cinema. After about six weeks of strict lockdown, New Zealand is slowly lifting restrictions in an attempt to get back to normal, which meant that this afternoon I was able to go to Wellington's brilliant Lighthouse Cuba, it's called, for a showing of Ben Wheatley's Happy New Year Colin Bursted. Obviously, there are a host of measures in place, hand sanitising and spaces left between all the seats. In this case, slightly less important because there were only three of us, <laughs> three of us <laughs> in the screening. But it was a great cinema experience. The film was great, funny and utterly believable. But my main reason to email is to say that the mere act of going to the cinema again has made me feel like it is possible to get back to some form of normal life, something that often hasn't felt possible recently. Here's hoping that once safe to do so, we'll all be back in the cinema watching great films like this again. Ben Wheatley's adaptation of Rebecca being the one I'm probably looking forward to the most. Uh, so th- so that's interesting. I think if you, uh, wherever you are, as it would be very nice just to get eyewitness reports, you know, as and when you're allowed to go to the cinema, we would like to hear from you. But in, New- yeah, in Iceland, yeah. they've gone back. In New Zealand, they're going back too. Didn't you say that film production was um was most likely to be happening where did, where was it that you said it was, was, yeah, it, was it new zealand is, or australia this is new australia zealand. because australia. i mean i think i can i think we can say this now because the because the the itch book which i wrote which the bbc are now going to screen uh to sometime this year it's been announced you wrote so a I think, book i think it's you should have you it's never okay. mentioned it it's like you anyway, never brought it up it was filmed in um western australia in uh, just south of Perth, right down on down on the coast near, in Albany, and they think that they're going to be able to film series two there because it is opening up before the rest of Australia. So there will be little pockets around the world where production opens up, and there'll be other places where it absolutely won't. So we would like to be updated as and when cinemas near you um, do open. And if you email the show, it's mayo at bbc.co.uk. 
So I think the key thing is when they do open, go and see something that no one else likes. Because if you go to screening, there's just three other people. Your social distancing is going to be okay, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. That's ideal. Generally, go and see anything that I recommend. Because I have been told many times that my recommendation can kill a movie stone dead. So if, <laughs> if I true. like it, you know, that's the, that's the one to pick. Okay, so we're going to have a top 10, uh, as suggested by a listener, uh, fairly shortly. Um, let's On the international flavour of the programme, which we do specialise in, uh, as you know, we've been doing this Witterworld thing, whereby we get, this is uh, brought about again by a, a listener who was stuck in New Zealand and was trying to watch a film uh, one film from every country in the world, which seems to me the most ridiculous project of all time. However, uh, so far we have had it for our Witterworld. We've had entries from Austria, Denmark, Iceland, Iraq, Italy, Malta, Nigeria, Norway, Poland, Romania, Scotland, Switzerland and Turkey. Uh, Mark, you know when last week we alerted people to Witterworld.com, which was created by Mark Whitaker, and we said other maps illustrating the location of all the countries in the world for which we've received nominations are available, and we thought, ha, 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 that's a funny quip. <laughs> well, there is another map, actually. Uh, Witterworld has a rival. Wittermaps.com has been created by Tom Begley, who didn't know about Mark's map when he emailed in and has made one of his own. Let battle commence. Anyway, here come the entries. Witterworld, Canadian entry. Uh, Dax from Canada says, we could go with a Denis Arcon film, Decline of the American Empire, maybe. Uh, do you know that one? Uh, yeah, but I mean, it, it's, I mean it's, there's so much you could have from Canada. Um, and incidentally, congratulations on Denis Arcon. You perfectly, perfectly passed. Amazing. Thank you very much. Uh, Swedish entry. This is from uh, Ludwig Arenborg. My Swedish contribution to the Witterworld is Sami Blood from 2016. It is a coming-of-age drama set in the 30s about a young Sami woman. Can I just say at this point, Sami, uh, these are the Finno-Ergic people. We, in English, used to call them Laps, or talk about Lapland, uh, but this is now considered uh, too colonialist, so you're not, you know, you're encouraged not to use that terminology. So anyway, this is uh, about a Sami woman who is torn between her roots and the Swedish society that keeps expanding into Satmi, which is the area, as I understand it, I apologise if I get this wrong, This uh, the northern parts of Norway, Sweden and Finland and Russia, which is where the Sami come from. Anyway, it's made by yeah. Swedish and Sami director Amanda Kanell, who is one of our most promising new directors, and it teaches very important as well as uncomfortable lessons about our very recent past that are not being taught in schools. And when I read that uh, today, Mark, I remember, do you remember a film called Pathfinder, which was actually nominated for Best Foreign Language Film in 1988 and then was described as like the first lap film to get international recognition. But I realise now we should have said Sami. Do you remember that film? No, I, off the top of my head, I don't. No, no, It's I'm fantastic. Sorry. It really, really is great. I'm going to make that oh. my film of the week. There you go. I don't know where you can Can I just it, say, on the, on the subject of, not in any way overriding the listeners, yes. if you're going to have a Denis Arcon film, do you not want to have Jesus of Montreal? I mean, uh, just because I know that that's a favourite. Well, no, because it's a favourite of yours, it's a favourite of mine. And, and we're not saying no, because it's still sticking with, with Denis Arcon, but, but could that, could we not have Jesus? No, because that, right. you're no, not, no, no, you're not no, 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 because we didn't, we didn't choose it. Um, right, okay, no, Nick, okay, Nick and Joel in Bristol. I'd like to add uh, an entry for American Samoa. 
and it's the film Next Goal Wins. It's the true story yes, of the American yeah, yeah. Samoan football team, who are the lowest-ranked national football team in the FIFA rankings after a 31-0 yeah. roasting by Australia. In comes a grumpy yeah. Dutch coach to try and turn things around. My son and I love this film, and it helped us with our footy withdrawal. It depicts the yeah. unique culture of Pacific Island life, the beauty of the team, and the coach is not what he seems at first. I can't imagine there are too many other American Samoan movies, although I may be wrong, of course. So you know this one. I absolutely love that. That's my favourite football film. It is just brilliant. It is is such a great story. Um, I, I think that somebody's making it into a feature film, um, but the, that documentary is just brilliant. And how could you possibly improve upon it? Venezuela's entry from Mariana. I'd like to claim the spot for Venezuela with the 1959 Venezuelan documentary called Araya about the tough lives of salt miners. Uh, thank you, Mariana. Uh, finally, Jack Rushton. Um, I would like, so in the 1930s, gold prospectors from Australia flew into the supposedly yeah. uninhabited mountains, the mountainous interior of Papua New Guinea. Upon landing, they discovered wide, fertile valleys and about a million people. First contact is the 1983 Oscar-nominated documentary film about this expedition and forms the first of a trilogy about the PNG Highlands, Papua New Guinea Highlands, a fascinating and chilling account of what Ian M. Banks called an out-of-context problem. So that's Papua New Guinea and Venezuela added to the respective maps. Thank you very much. And can I just say, coming in. I just checked this, I'm right, Taika Waititi is doing Next Goal Wins and uh, Michael Fassbender is, uh, is, is starring in it. So okay, I'm already interested. That, that sounds pretty darn good, doesn't it? Already. Yeah, Michael Fassbender, Elizabeth Moss. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, it looks like a like a like a like a really interesting film. But that documentary is damn near perfect. I love that film. So the uh, the email address is mail at bbc.co.uk, and one of the things you're taking uh, advantage of that for is to is to give us a top ten. So obviously there isn't a box office top ten because there's no box office. However, there might be an Icelandic box office. We could, hey, that'd be quite good. If there is an Icelandic box office, we should be having yeah, a look at that. We should. I mean, it, absolutely. If there we is have one, a featured chart. Okay. <laughs> you suggest a, a subject for the top 10, uh, but you actually have to include all the top 10. That's the way it goes. Yeah. This week's comes from Daniel Foster, and it's the top 10 greater remake, remakes of great films. Rule one. Yeah. The original must be a great film or considered so okay. in the context of its release, country, That's time crucial. or genre. So know the fly or angst essen, sila auf. So it has to be, a, the original has to be great, not a turkey. Okay, or, Rule or two, considered great. Yeah. The remake must be better. So no Nosferatu, Cape Fear, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Some decisions were very close. Okay, so obviously okay. Yeah. this is intended just so you can argue. Top yeah, 10 yeah, yeah, greater remakes. At 10, Ben-Hur. Daniel says, original, 1925, a bit pompous, but what a chariot race. Uh, 1959 remake, Charlton Heston is great at being a bit pompous and what a chariot race. Anyway, he says, film two, better than film one. Yeah, although it's worth saying that there's a 1907 silent short. And of course, Ben-Hur began life as a stage play, which is really interesting because the chariot race, they used to do on stage, on Broadway. Wow. They used to have a cyclotron thing in which they had actual horses. And of course, there was recently a 2016 remake, wasn't there, of Ben-Hur, which was completely pointless. So it, it's, it's a film that has been told many times. 
even before the invention of film. But I agree with you that the, uh, I remember going to see the, 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 the 1950s version. I saw it in the 70s when it was reissued and I saw it at the Odeon Barnet. I just loved it. So Ben has it 10. Number nine, is it Satoichi? Is that how you say it? Satoichi. Okay, Satoichi. Uh, Daniel says the original, Shintaro Katsu plays a blind masseur and master swordsman in a film that spawned 25 sequels. A Japanese superhero who would walk into town, listen, slaughter the bad guys and relieve tense, nervous headaches. (laughs) Um, The remake, Takashi Kintaro sees the humour in this but keeps up the suspense and action, then uses the end credits for his own bizarre tribute to musicals and Chanbara, which is a sword fighting of samurai cinema, because I know that. The thing is, you know, if Takeshi Kitano is going to take on anything, it's not surprising that it because because I mean the most amazing thing about Takeshi Kitano is, is what an extraordinary career he's had. I remember reviewing this for Sight and Sound, and what I said about it at the time was that it was an attempt to popularize his movie slightly. In the because that is what one of the things they do is that they use CG blood, but it is I mean it is a arguably a better film than at least the first of its many predecessors. I like it. I think I don't think it's perfect, but I like it a lot. And of course, as Lee Child has said many times about Jack Reacher, I mean, that, that, could, that is it. it. A guy walks into town, listens, slaughters the bad guys and relieves Ted Snow's <laughs> That's exactly, that's what Jack Reacher, that is what Jack Reacher does. Uh, so it's the classic format. Number eight in our chart of top 10 greater remakes of great films Scarface. Daniel says the original atmospheric 30s tale of the rise and fall of a gangster banned in many cities and one of the American Film Institute top 10 gangster films so officially great. The remake, I can imagine De Palma saying, that was great Al, terrific, very restrained. Do you want an alternate (laughs) take? (laughs) Scarface at eight, Mark. As far as I remember, that version actually originated as a project that Pacino wanted doing. And so Pacino was the driving force in it. Very much, I did an onstage interview with um, with Pacino in which I was at the Hammersmith Odeon, in which he hoo-hard his way through the whole thing. I mean, he did he did the full kind of Al Pacino and and Scarface. It is one of those things that literally, as he was walking on stage, people were shouting, "Say hello to my little friend," and they wanted him to shout it back to them, and he did. Number seven in the top ten greater remakes of great film chart. La Jete and Twelve Monkeys. Daniel's words, the original, a post-apocalyptic time travel tale told almost entirely through the medium of still photos that cast questions on time, sanity, warfare and choice, all in under half an hour. Brilliant, original and there has been nothing like it. Remake. Terry Gilliam retells the story as a slightly more normal narrative with a good cast and, crucially, losing the more philosophical elements, thus gaining the edge over the original. Well, I mean, I love I love Twelve Monkeys. Um, I love La Jetée as well, and I think they both they both hold up. I think you'd be hard pressed to say that one was better than the other, actually, because although Twelve Monkeys is a favourite, La Jetée, in terms of, I mean, it is it is a really really brilliant uh, you know idea to tell that story effectively through still photographs. But I love both of them. Uh, to which David Thomas adds. 12 Monkeys Better Than La Jetée, Get Right Out. There's a lot of that about to happen. Six, (laughs) The Man Who Knew Too Much, uh, the original tense Hitchcock classic with a beautifully cinematic climax, uh, then tense Hitchcock classic with a beautifully cinematic climax and Hollywood production values. Hitchcock himself in that um, Hitchcock show. You've got a Hitchcock poster, Um, but there was the the, the Hitchcock Truffaut conversation. Apparently, 
Hitchcock said, the first version is the work of a talented amateur and the second was made by a professional, which I think is a, a particularly astute quote. Top five, at five, The Thief of Baghdad. Uh, Daniel says, the original 1924, Raoul Walsh directs Douglas Fairbanks in a pacey swashbuckler with terrific action sequences. In the remake in 1940, Powell produces, Corda directs a great cast, albeit with a 1940s attitude to race, and brings whimsy, humour, action and special effects that didn't date for three decades. You should see the poster if you get a chance. Google the poster because the tagline was a mighty Technicolor spectacle. Here's the best bit. A thousand and one sights from a thousand and one nights. Oh, see boom. what they did there? Yeah. <laughs> boom. It's not that good though, is it really? No. Uh, okay. Number four, The Thing from Another World, remade as The Thing. Uh, the original RKO science fiction thriller that made a virtue of its low budget and weathers better than more expensive contemporaries. And then, uh, anyway, Daniel says, remake 1982, over to Mark. Why do people remake classics? And then leaves it to you. Well, actually, there's been another version since then, hasn't there? There was a a remake in in the last 10 years, um, which was terrible. The the origin of all this is is who goes there, the Campbell source. And, you know, famously, Thing from Another World stars James Arness as a big carrot. When John Carpenter goes back armed with Rob Bottin and he says, you know, can we do the shape-shifting? And Rob Bottin says, yeah, would you like a disembodied head that walks with the legs of a spider? And John Carpenter says, I'll have some of that. And it's just, I mean, it's jaw-dropping. I know I say this every time we bring this up. If you get a chance, read Anne Bilson's BFI modern classic on John Carpenter's The Thing, because it is a great book about a great film. Matty says, uh, the thing is much better than the thing. So I hope you weren't referring to the thing there. So thanks for the clarification. <laughs> Top three, we've got three minutes. Uh, Jimbo and a fistful of dollars. Original, a masterclass samurai walks into a town with two rival gangs, plays one against the other to his own advantage. A lesser Kurosawa, so a really tough act to follow. Character led with action, tension and humour. Visually beautiful. Remake. Sergio Leone films this as a Western, giving Clint Eastwood his first lead role. Leone steps up the visuals with crash zooms and extreme close-up, adds more humour and action, but it wouldn't be better than Yojimbo without Sergio Leone's score. Uh, to which Keith Kelleher says, wait, does this mean A Fistful of Dollars is better than Yojimbo? I must be misunderstanding this whole concept because that can't be right. And Paul Klein says the idea that anything is better than Yojimbo is very wrong. Mark? Well, technically, it's not fully a remake. I mean, first, it was uncredited. Also, it draws on Red Harvest and Servant of Two, uh, two Masters, as Chris Frading has pointed out. Although th- there was a you know a legal case about it because it was so close. Um, there's a quote from Kurosawa, Leone made a fine movie, but it was my movie. Number two is True Grit. Uh, Daniel says the original, after a decade and a half of self-inflicted drivel, John Wayne accepts a role that plays with his legend and wins him an Oscar. Based on the Charles Portis novel, the script deliberately gives outlaws and bounty hunters the correct grammar of a 19th century school mom, giving the climactic line, fill your hands, you son of a bird song, its impact. Remake. By sticking even closer to the source, the Coen brothers produce a character, a character-based two-hander that delivers more humour, tense suspense, action and character. It's got it all, including more Oscars. If they hadn't remade Lady Killers, they might have got the top spot. True Grit at number two. 
again, the Coens said that you know, their film isn't um, a remake. It is just an original adaptation of Charles Putz's novel. Um, there's an awful lot of Jeff Bridges, even with that kind of language. My favourite line in it is, why do you think they hung him so high? And well, presumably in the mistaken belief that it would make him more dead. Very good. And number one in Daniel's top ten greater remakes of great films, A Star is Born. Original, 1937. Okay, but not that great without. Remake, 1957. Garland and Mason ham it up in a classic melodrama where an ageing Svengali watches his protégé grow more famous than him. Tragic overtones with Garland's own life. Remake, 1976. Laconic Rhodes scholar Chris Christopherson and fiercely intelligent polymath Barbara Streisand take on the roles. Gary Boosie seems to have found his home planet. Remake again, 2018. Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. Truly, this story is the thinking person's schlock. Triple-decker status gets it the top spot. To those who say this isn't a remake, it's just another adoption of the source material, I say it wouldn't have got the funding and the audience don't know that. Anyway, the number one is A Star Is Born. I mean, it, it, it is a remake. There's no question. I would absolutely go for the Judy Garland, James Mason, 1954, because I think that's, that is the classic version. But I really, really like the new version. Then again, I really like the Streisand version, although I would love Elvis to have been allowed to take that role, which Colonel Tom Parker essentially prevented him from taking, because I think it would have been a great late career revival and would have demonstrated the acting chops that he showed in the films of the 1950s. But I, okay. I, I, I argue the 50s version is still the classic. Okay, we're just drifting into Elvis memorabilia there, so we're moving on. And if you have a top 10 uh, that you would like to suggest and then fill in all the blanks, send it in. It's mayo at bbc.co.uk. Hello, this is Five Live. It's Wittertainment on your radio for the next hour. That's what it is. And uh, just before the news, apologies if you're listening to the Saturday version because you'll have missed the preamble. We were in our box office top 10, which doesn't exist. The top 10 was, uh, as suggested by listener Daniel, top 10 greater remakes of great films. And the top three was uh, Yojimbo Fistful of Dollars, True Grit at two and A Star Is Born. At number one, the whole point of these charts is for you to argue and go, that's a load of rubbish. I mean, I can't believe you've done that. Yeah. If, you've got a, if you've got a better idea, then you send yours in, please, uh, mayo at bbc.co.uk. So just picking up on all of uh, that, Matthew Twigger, because we published this uh, on our socials so people can see what's happening here. Matthew Twigger, are we ruling out the boys in blue, Cannon and Ball's interpretation of Will Hayes' seminal Ask a Policeman? I think we probably are, Matthew. Catherine Lunny uh, says Ocean's Eleven is a Soderbergh classic and so slick and enjoyable. The Departed, 2006. Three Men and a Baby was a remake of a French movie, Trois Hommes et une Cuffin. Uh, A Little Princess, 1995, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Bruce McNichol, Cape Fear, one of De Niro's best performances in a great wardrobe. Tommy Etling, I imagine that means De Niro was wearing great clothes as opposed to there was a great Narnia-esque wardrobe. (laughs) That was a completely... Nice bit of carpentry there, Robert. Uh, Wizard of Oz, says Tommy Etling. Wizard of Oz, silent forerunner to the 39 classic, was a monster hit starring one Oliver Hardy. Little Shop of Horrors, famously written, shot and edited in just two weeks as a bet in 1960. Jack Nicholson's first on-screen role surpassed 26 years later by the peerless musical and peter mason good list but missing the beat that my heart skipped um where remain is it romaine duris dury romain dury plays yes, the conflicted romain dury. dury plays the conflicted mobster part even better than harvey Keitel, and the tenderness of the relationship with the teacher adds a new element 
Uh, errors and omissions is always a useful part. You got anything to add there? Yeah, absolutely. So the three that I always come back to is I think that the Jim McBride uh, remake of Breathless is better than Abu Souf. I think that uh, Wages of Fear is actually arguably uh, bettered by Sorcerer. And I know that for ages and ages, everybody said you can't make a better film than Wages of Fear. Wages of Fear is great. But I think freaking Sorcerer, particularly after the reassessment that's had in the past few years. And um, and I, I'm going to stand by this. I think the Steven Soderbergh Solaris is the superior version, and I don't care what anyone else thinks. I think you've established that over a number of years. That you, I have. I'm really sorry, but there we go. Uh, okay, <laughs> so if you've got a, a great idea for a chart and you want to send in, uh, do please, uh, we'll happily receive that, and that's mail at bbc.co.uk. Uh, we are going to be speaking to Meryl Heller, director of A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, and Mark will probably start singing, but hopefully that's while the interview is running, so it won't spoil anything for anybody. So you won't hear it. Uh, what is what is out and what is new and what is interesting? Okay, so a new film on uh, Netflix, uh, The Lovebirds, which is, I mean, I suppose the way to describe it is a romantic murder mystery romp starring, but crucially not written by, Kamal Gianni and uh, Issa Rae. So the film starts with a montage sequence of them falling in love. They're very sort of super touchy-feely. You know, then cut to, I think it's three years later, and we meet them in the middle of a row. It's like that, um, you know, that meatloaf song, uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Yes. In which there's that thing in which, you know, um, I, I swore that I would, you know, love you till the end of time. And now I'm praying, praying for the, for end, for of the time. end of time. So it's, it's the time. Exactly. So it's that kind of uh, thing. So it cuts to them. They're having, they can't agree on anything. They can't even agree on what restaurant to go to. And as she says, we live in New Orleans, best restaurants around, <clears throat> you know. So how they have petty squabbles, petty jealousies. He's jealous of this guy that he thinks that she's kind of interested in. He's a documentary filmmaker, or at least he says he's a documentary filmmaker, who won't show her his work. She works in an ad agency. They're due to go to a party. And en route, in the car, they realise that they've kind of run out of road and they break up in the car. And they sort of, he takes his eye off the road, he turns to look at her, bang, hits a cyclist. Cyclist smashes the window. He runs out, you know, cyclist is, seems to be okay, gets up and immediately runs off. At which point somebody else turns up, claiming to be a plainclothes policeman, says, chase that guy. So the guy then gets in the car, they chase the cyclist, they catch the cyclist with very bad results. Uh, at which point they realise that the guy probably wasn't a plainclothes policeman after all, but he's now disappeared and they now look like the suspects in a crime. And the only way they can get off the hook is by solving the crime themselves. So it's one of those kind of, you know, uh, those sort of caper romps in which the, the, the mechanics of the plot are simply there to put the central couple in a bunch of different situations in which they can do the thing they do. Um, it's directed by Michael Showalter, who directed The Big Sick, which I loved. But that was crucially written by Duran um, Anjani and Emily V. Gordon, and it was autobiographically inspired, and it was a really, really brilliant script. This is written by Aaron Abrams and Brendan Gold. It has nothing of that kind of narrative drive or complexity or heart of the big sick. So it's it's basically much more like that kind of that well-worn setup that you get in like date night or, or into the night, actually, the the, the you know the um uh, the John Landis film. That the the mechanics of the plot are just there. You know, as a, as a function of moving them from one situation to the next, and they pretty much end up getting in the way. All the laughs are because the two the two leads are funny, and 
them bickering and squabbling between. I mean, who knew that you could build 90 minutes of entertainment principally on two people who actually are clearly made for each other, but just bickering and squabbling and arguing about nothing. Amazing. I mean, who whoever thought that such a Ridiculous. thing was... And of course, the more pointless the arguments, the better they are. They argue about the lyrics of songs. They, there's a weird setup gag about arguing about the spontaneity of an orgy, whether or not orgies are planned or whether they happen spontaneously. And this actually turns up to be a setup for a, a, a really extended gag much later on, in which there is a really long sequence, which is a gag about eyes wide shut. The, the sort of, <laughs> which is one of those weird things because you just think, you know. Okay, we've had a we've had a whole bunch of things that they they, you know, they they get they get captured, they get tortured. There's a weird thing with a horse. There's a weird thing with a chip with a with a pan full of fat. There's all these bits, but I did not expect to end up with a whole big set piece gag about eyes wide shut. So it's it's not terrible. It's not terribly good either. It is, however, shorter and let's be honest, funnier than Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, okay, and where can I see that film? It's on Netflix and it's called The Lovebirds. Okay, lockdown correspondents uh, are on their way. What else is out there, Mark? Well, also, just arrived on Netflix. This is a film I took home. It was released uh, in cinemas, which is Monos, the uh, Alejandro Landis film, which is just brilliant. Second feature from uh, the Colombian uh, Ecuadorian writer director. And it is this just dizzying fable of uh, child soldiery. And it sort of plunges the audience headfirst into this, this immersive. Uh, environment it's there's something of lord of the flies in there it's an incredible uh, ensemble cast youthful ensemble cast an amazing score by mika levy which i'm proud to say i've got a, a vinyl copy of i love mika levy's work i just think it's it's really terrific and the best thing about it is is it, it's one of those those films in which it's very hard to describe in terms of plot because so much of it is about the atmosphere. So much of it is about the 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 immersive experience of, but you like you, you don't really know about exactly where we are or exactly what the uh, you know what the circumstances of how we got there are. There's all these I said these kind of child soldiers. They have a prisoner. They are being spoken to by um, people who appear to be in charge, but may not be so. It's it's breathtaking to look at. At times, I was reminded of um, the Valley Obscured by Clouds in terms of the, the visual look of it. It has the most uh, amazing soundtrack, and there are there are things in it that I think you're not going to see anywhere else in cinema. You, you think about Apocalypse Now, you think of Aguirre, uh, Wrath of God. I mean, it also reminded me to some extent of, uh, of Pichot, the, the uh, Hector Babenko film. I was thinking at sometimes of Johnny Mad Dog, which is a, a really terrific film, which doesn't get spoken of enough. But it is very much its own, um, its own beast. And it's, it's called Monos. It's on, uh, uh, it's on Netflix. If you haven't seen it yet, you haven't got a chance to do, because it's one of the films I've been most excited about seeing in the last few years. When the cinemas are open, we talk about lobby correspondence. As we can't get to the lobby, you are now becoming lockdown correspondents and you've been sending in your short audio reviews and recommendations. Basically, you just record yourself once you've watched something. Uh, can be just you or anyone else who's watched it with you. You send it attached to an email to mayo at bbc.co.uk. First lockdown correspondent this week, Aileen from London. I've just finished watching Mr. Klein from 1976 from the shocking opening to the inevitable conclusion. I found this a really worthwhile film, chilling and frighteningly relevant to the world today. 
That's Alien on Mr. Klein. I haven't seen Mr. Klein. Should I watch that or that make me more paranoid? Uh, it's, it's not going to help you. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> you know, we were, you and I were having a discussion the other day about right now is what everybody really wants to see, stuff that makes you feel happy and jolly. And uh, it's a part of me that thinks Mary Poppins is available almost all the time. Just go there. It's the safe place. That's a very, very good uh, reminder. Anthony is on the Pacific coast of Canada. Just caught Orfu Negro, Black Orpheus. Uh, it's so beautifully shot, and it's really revitalizing right now to be thrown into a crowd like that. I mean, you don't get much further from social distancing than Carnival in Rio. Uh, the rhythm just doesn't let up throughout the entire film. I was actually standing up and just moving to the music for a good portion of it. And... Um, what a beautiful way to tie up the final few seconds. So that's Anthony uh, on the Pacific coast of Canada. A little bit long, Anthony, but the rest of it was interesting, Mark. Well, the last time I looked, it was available on BFI Play with a fantastic introduction by a really young, slim, rocking-looking film critic, and I, I definitely checked that out. Andrew Cabrera Luna is from Mexico, but in Edinburgh, and she's been watching Ivetaloni by Fellini. It's a wonderful film. It transports you to 1950s Italy and you see this small town through the eyes of these young men who must be in their early 20s or mid-20s and they behave like teenagers. Everything is fun and magic. Wonderful, wonderful film. Was I right, Mark, in saying I Vitellini? Is it Vitellini, maybe? I Vitellini. I Vitellini. There you go. Yes, and, and it, it is a wonderful film. I mean, but then there comes there, there's, there's, there's almost a, a point with, you know, real classics. And again, of which there are many on, on the BBC iPlayer and on the BFI player, um, a whole bunch of classics available at the moment, which is um, visiting, revisiting them and finding something new and fresh to say about them. What I loved about that was it actually sounded like that listener correspondent was, was, had been completely enraptured by the film. Uh, here's Gracie, who's 11, and James, who's 9. Their lockdown thoughts about Hook. I thought it was so exciting, and I think it was very joyous, and I felt like I could fly in every moment. Like, you're just sitting on the edge of your seat, just thinking, what will happen next? What will happen next? And you're just thinking, oh, it's amazing. It was great. I loved it. In the end, if you think about it, it's just absolutely amazing, and it's such a good film. That's great. I love that. I love, and I love James' payoff. If you just stop and think about it, it's an amazing film. So thanks I, look, I don't know whether James. this is possible. Can we send a copy of that to Steven Spielberg? Because if you remember Steven Spielberg, when we asked him about, you know, uh, uh, if, uh, do you ever watch any of your other films? And he said, he said, I don't. He said, but I would like at some point to go back and rewatch Hook to see if there's anything in it that I like. And I think that would be... Uh, vindication that response from those two uh, viewers would be vindication for him okay so we need to that's that's one for our production team isn't it just get Spielberg on the phone or get his email and we'll send that to him he's not busy Stephen if you're listening it's mayo at bbc.co.uk Rebecca is in Richmond in Surrey she's watched John Wick 
I am a woman of a certain age and Keanu Reeves has often invoked a cool breeze over my mountains, but I didn't think that I liked the genre of film that I had stereotyped John Wick into. And within 10 minutes, it had blown up those stereotypes. It's fun. It's funny. It pokes fun at itself, but Keanu is wonderful throughout. And apologies to my husband for not listening to him sooner. Invoked a cool breeze over my mountains. <laughs> really? Okay. Thanks, Rebecca. Lastly, here's Max and Jill, possibly Gil, in London, and they've just watched The Hunt for the Wilder People. I'm Gil. It's a really good movie. It's very funny. And go, go Ricky Baker! Baker. Okay, clearly it's Gil uh, and Max. That's very good. Concise, short, funny. Two voices. That's very good. I like that. Which of those did you like the most of our correspondents? Well, actually, I mean, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't like to prefer those, but I, I loved loving Hook, and I loved that because it gives me a chance to say, you can call him Uncle. Now he can't. Good. Thanks for that. A very good anecdote. Uh, Mayo at bbc.co.uk. Just watch something, uh, whether you've loved it, whether you've hated it. It absolutely doesn't matter. We just like your voice on the programme. Mayo at bbc.co.uk. OK, we're going to talk to Marielle Heller very, very shortly if we get the technicals to work. Uh, meantime, uh, what else is out? Uh, so Take Me Somewhere Nice, which is the debut feature by uh, Aina Sendjerovic. Um, so this is the story is um, Sarah Lee Mazoric is Alma, who is a Dutch Bosnian teenager who's been living in Holland with her mother. She goes back to Bosnia to visit her father, who was in hospital, who she says she lost to nostalgia for the homeland some time ago. And she's been told that her cousin, Emir, will look after her when she gets there. When she gets there, the cousin doesn't seem to have any time for her at all. And uh, he's too busy doing his own stuff. So she's kind of left to be variously, well, various, abandoned, kidnapped, helped, hindered, loved, hated by Emir and his friend Danis. Um, it's an it's a really interesting film. It's clearly inspired by the mood and tone of Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise, which is a film I like very much. Um, and it's got this sort of deadpan absurdist streak in it that throws all the protagonists together in this this odyssey that seems to be going nowhere and yet you know kind of is going somewhere emotionally there there's a lot of thematic stuff that you sort of don't notice immediately i mean in a the, the film primarily is about duality it's about migration it's about displacement it's about people being in different places at the wrong time and there's an awful lot of um doubling and, and, and coupling and mirror images there is one really really strange sequence involving um you know one of those magic shows in which they saw somebody in half which seems to be a kind of a sort of central theme of what the film's about it's got it's shot in academy in four by three finds this strange colorful beauty in places that you wouldn't expect it and it also has a kind of um a sort of sensual energy that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a film in which the characters are playing everything so deadpan. I saw an interview with the director that was done, I think, at the Rotterdam Film Festival, in which she was talking about uh, actors as puppets. And the whole point is that they're meant to talk in a way that sort of suggests that the, that the words aren't their own, that they are part of some, you know, larger authorial process. And actually, when I was watching it, I just thought what's what's interesting is that even for all those alienating devices, you do get involved with the characters. It is, it's a really odd and a very kind of very arresting movie. It's called Take Me Somewhere Nice, and it's on Mubi. 
Okay, coming up, we'll be dealing with the TV movies of the week, plus the TV movies of the week, so bad, they're bad. But first, let's go to the United States and speak to the wonderful Marielle Heller, who's on the end of the line. Hello, Marielle. Hello, how are you today? Well, I'm doing all right. I'm in my spare bedroom, and the house opposite me is being destroyed by builders. So if it sounds a real racket, then you'll know the reason why. Everybody's dealing with different, you know, funny home acoustic problems with everything we do these days the the technology has taken over are you uh we do we find you in your lockdown house yes we are lucky enough to be outside of new york city where we normally live we got out to the country and are hunkering down living a farm farm life i feel like i've gone back 200 years basically <laughs> have you found before we talk about beautiful day in the neighborhood which which i can't wait to talk about because it's one of my favorite films of the year have you found this period creative or have you found it just really frustrating i think because i'm a parent the productivity is not what i wish it would be you know my husband and i joke that we're very jealous of our friends right now who don't have kids in many ways who are able to use this as a big writing retreat and maybe pen the great next novel or screenplay that's going to win an Oscar or something. I think for us, it's much more of a feeling of of treading water. We're just trying to get through each day, do a little bit of work when we can, homeschool our kid. We split up, we split up our day so we each get a few hours to work. But mostly it's about trying to stay sane, trying to stay happy and healthy as much as we can, and trying to stay connected to the people we love. Yeah, the builders have just started up their lorry again. So I, I apologise if it sounds a racket coming from the London end uh, of this conversation. Anyway, A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood uh, streams from Monday the 25th. It's out on DVD uh, on June the 8th. What a picture. We we had a great time speaking to Tom just before the end of the year. We, we love Tom Hanks on this programme so much. We now finish every show with a feature that we call Hanks for Listening. And we find a little speech which which Tom has made in in one of his in one of his many fantastic films, just to make everybody feel better because we feel as though he's oh, our spiritual leader. I love that. I mean, Tom is just such a wonderful such a wonderful guy, and getting to work with him only made me more convinced of what a great person he is. And and he was just a really fantastic person to work with. And I hope I'll get to do it again. Was there anyone else who was ever in the frame to play Fred Rogers? Not really. I mean, there was a period of time where we didn't think he was going to say yes to the movie. He had turned it down, actually, a number of times before I came on board. And he ended up signing on largely because of the relationship he and I had before we made this film. We had gotten to know each other, and he had been an admirer of my films, and we had been keeping in touch over many years. But... um. We did talk a lot about if it's not Tom, who would it be? And I think, you know, we felt like it would have to be an unknown actor. There's no real other Hmm. movie stars who we feel the way we feel about Tom, you know, and Mr. Rogers is such a specific character. You have to feel a certain way about him. He has to kind of crack your heart open and you have to feel, you know, a real love for him and like you know him in a deep way. And so there, there really wasn't anyone else who was well known that we could ever imagine in that part. So you have two audiences, really, Marielle. You have the audience in the States, obviously, who know Fred Rogers very, very well, and he's part of American TV culture. And then you have the, re- the rest of us, and over here in the UK, I mean, I did know who he was because I'd watched the documentary about him a couple of years ago. So we were kind of starting to, to realise who he was. But there's a moment in your movie when Matthew Reese, who plays Lloyd Vogel, Matthew Reese's wife says, 
as he embarks on this quest to interview Mr. Rogers. I, I, think, I think she says something like, I hope you're not going to ruin my childhood. Please don't ruin my childhood. Please don't ruin, ruin my childhood. I wonder if there are a number of Americans who said to you like that, as soon as they heard this movie was being made, please, please don't, don't wreck it. Oh, definitely. I mean, you guys in London, in the UK, as well as us in, in America, we've had a lot of our heroes fall from grace. We've had a lot of disappointing people over the years who have really made us lose faith sometimes in humanity. And mm. so everybody who would hear I was making this movie, that was the first thing they would say to me is, oh, no, is there something terrible? Oh, God. And I would have to go, no, 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 no. Don't worry. Don't worry. He is what we thought he was. And I felt that when I came and premiered the movie in London, where audiences were so skeptical, especially because the movie hadn't been promoted yet. It was we, we came early with the film and people were really scared that it was going to be something where it was going to ruin their feeling of nostalgia or their childhood and that was never my intention I had no I don't have any interest in telling those stories that are going to make particularly in this moment in time make us feel bad about the world or humanity yes. you know part of what was so beautiful about Fred is the more I got to know about him the more I was moved by how consistent he was with his philosophy he was somebody who truly walked the walk he didn't just talk the talk he believed in deep connection with people he believed in children he worked with child psychologists and he was very radical in his beliefs about children and their feelings and why they're valid he gave so much so much validity to children and their experiences as as much as if they were adults and especially when he started the show in 1968 that was really unheard of he was coming from such a deep place of truly wanting to help and to help the world and to help children and he really lived that in his life it was a beautiful thing to get to to get to uncover more and more details of his life and to find him to be such a purely consistent person. He was somebody who had to work very, very hard to kind of live the philosophy of who he wanted to be in the world that was not about his own ego, but was truly about being present for other people. But he really did it. And I think part of why I wanted to make this movie is because we have so few people, so few role models these days, particularly men who show us examples of what it is to be a feeling emotional man who's trying to be just a good person yeah that's interesting i wonder if because of the way he spoke and because maybe to modern eyes the the tv presentation was a bit hokey it's easy yeah. to dismiss the fact that he was a radical oh i think even back then it was easy to dismiss that fact i think there was something about you know his sincerity I think we've been cynical for a long, long time. And somebody who is that sincere is very easy to make fun of. I mean, I remember doing it myself as a kid. I remember kind of thinking he was hokey and for babies and something, you know, not cool about him. Although I loved him when I was younger, when I was little. But he was very easy to, to, to dismiss. And it was only really when I became a mom that I was able to go back to his philosophy and see how truly radical it was and to see that there was nothing about his, his program that was trying to sweep anything under the rug or just be happy or cheesy. In fact, his whole philosophy was built around honesty and that you tell kids the truth and that you can talk about the darkest, hardest subjects of life and childhood and that kids need to talk about those things. They need to learn about those things and they need to, to learn about those things in ways that can feel safe to them. I'd like to ask you about one particular scene, which I think from 
if I remember right from our conversation with Tom, that is the I think about the first scene that you actually recorded, the scene between Fred Rogers and Lloyd Vogel in the restaurant. When Fred says to Lloyd, I want you to, we're just going to take a minute and remember all the people who loved you into being. And your camera moves around the table and... I think we timed it. It's actually like a minute, 15 seconds. It's actually, long, it's actually longer than a minute. Yeah. And I, I explained this scene to actually to Richard E. Grant, another star of previous films, because he was over to promote Star Wars. And I was telling him about this scene. He said, really? For a minute? Are you joking? Because he, he hadn't seen the movie. I know. And it seems to me such an important, such an incredible scene. And I think even Tom Hanks said to you, really, are we going to do it this way? Can you just explain what you were trying to do in that scene? Because it seems to be sort of pivotal to the whole thing. Well, it's funny because Tom didn't actually tell me until later how skeptical he was about that scene. And he and Matthew (laughs) both didn't believe that I was going to actually keep that scene in the way that I had envisioned it. But it was the scene I felt the clearest about. You know, Mr. Rogers on his program, he would look right down the barrel of the lens and he would look at the kids on the other side of the TV set, and he believed the space between the television and the child was a sacred space. And he would ask them to be a part of the show. He would ask them how they were, and he would wait for an answer. And he was inviting his children, the audience for his program, to be active participants. And we knew we wanted to have this moment in the film where we were going to invite the audience to be an active participant in the film. Fred was also known for doing this. When he won a Daytime Emmy Award, he got up and instead of talking about his accomplishments or his, you know, what he does on his program or what he believes or the people who work with him, he got up and he said, I'd like everybody here to take 10 seconds. They only let him have 10 seconds. (laughs) And, And he did this exercise and he said, I'm going to, I want us all to think about the people who loved you into being, who helped you get here today. And you look around the room and it's all of these people dressed up in their finest glitzy outfits and tuxes, all thinking about themselves, all ego, all thinking about, am I going to win? Am I going to lose? You know, they're in this moment in time where that's what they're there for. It's this big competition. And he does this exercise and you watch one by one, everybody tears rolling down their cheeks because it's such a profound moment to say, let's look outside of ourselves. Let's think about the other people who brought you here, who loved you. There was a a question I was going to ask Tom when I did the interview with him at the end of last year, and then we ran out of time because we were so busy trying to seek reassurance from the great man that things were going to be all right. But there are a couple of moments, and maybe this is incidental, and I'm on completely the wrong track. There are a couple of moments, particularly towards the end of the film, where Fred Rogers puts his hand on his back as though he's suffering from back pain, and mm. I know he died of stomach cancer in 2003. And, I, and yeah. I wondered whether you were alluding to something that all was not well with Fred Rogers at that time. Was that yeah, your direction well, or was that what Tom had done? There were a few reasons for those choices. So, you know, he did die of stomach cancer. And one of the things we discovered when we were really doing research about Fred was he was almost like a priest. People would come up to him and tell him all of their troubles and sort of heap their stories on him and he wanted that he asked for that from the people he was interacting with daily and then you would go to his wife and you'd say does he share with you does he tell you about other people's troubles who come to him and she would say oh no he wouldn't betray their trust he doesn't he doesn't unburden that on me but maybe ask bill maybe he talks to bill about it and then you'd go to bill and bill would say oh no he doesn't talk to me about other people's troubles maybe ask you know so and so and the truth was he didn't unburden on anybody he truthfully 
was like a vessel who sort of absorbed the pain that he was experiencing from other people and I think felt it very deeply. So part of what we wanted to allude to at the end of the movie was this idea that there was a price to pay for being such a giver, for being somebody who really absorbed and felt the pain of the world and other people's troubles. The other thing is because he was a puppeteer and he worked with these puppets for th right. 40 years, he actually had very bad back, upper back trouble from having his hand up above his head. And he always, up until the end of the show, was the one to operate all of the puppets that he voiced. And he would crouch in these very uncomfortable positions. And he had a lot of back trouble in his upper back because of that. Uh, I have two questions, Marielle, before, before we run out of time. The first one is an easy question. And that is, was it your idea to have Nick Drake's Northern Sky as the first piece of music that we hear? I love that song. And it was such a fun challenge to try and find the first song that was <laughs> going to bridge us out of, out of Mr. Rogers' land into our New York world in 1998, which is when the movie was set. And Howard Parr, who's my amazing supervisor, music supervisor, who's worked with me on all three movies, I believe was the one who suggested that song first. Right. And it just fits so perfectly. It was the only yeah, It's song. my favorite song of all time. Well, so I'm so I, glad to I hear thought, that. I have never heard this in a movie before. It's got Tom Hanks. This is wonderful. And, uh, and finally, Marielle, I know this is the trickier of the two questions. What do you, I know your industry is trying to work out what, what it's going to look like when we're all allowed to go back to the cinema and when you're allowed to make films and get crews and get actors together. What do you think it's going to look like when it, eventually you're allowed to leave your house and go and make a movie again? Mm -hmm. I wish I knew the answer to that. I think that's where we're all living right now is this horrible feeling that we can't predict the future and it's hard to really envision what life will be. You know, it's hard to envision for me being back on a set with 200 people in production, which is my favorite part of making films and it's the part I miss the most right now. And yet I can't I can't envision how it's going to work, which just makes me immensely sad. But I do know that storytelling and art is what's getting so many of us through this pandemic. I mean, I think everyone you talk to is talking about what are you watching? What's making you feel good right now? Yeah. What are the stories that are taking you away from your life in this moment? So we obviously are regaining a sense of the importance of storytelling, the importance of filmmaking, the importance of a good TV show, a good escapism. So I think in that way, there's that positive side to it. And I wish I had some magic ball to be able to see how we will make this happen. I'm having a hard time envisioning it for myself. I know a lot of people are talking about quarantining and taking over a hotel where everybody goes there two weeks ahead of time and, you know, isolates before they start filming. For me, as a mom, that's not realistic. I want to be able to have my, my life outside of being a director. It's something I fight for on my sets. I fight to make shorter hours so that people can go home and see their children. And so having a whole set where you're totally separated from your family in order to make a movie for me doesn't seem realistic and it kind of goes against my bigger philosophy of what I think the filmmaking business should look like so I don't know I don't know but I know that we're going to need stories more than ever and as Fred Rogers would say anything mentionable is manageable I agree I agree Marielle Heller such a privilege to speak to you thank you very much for your time oh it was a pleasure Marielle Heller uh, speaking to us from the United States and a beautiful day, just to repeat, beautiful day in the neighborhood streams from Monday. The DVD waits till June the 8th. Uh, what a lovely film. Very interesting woman there, Mark. 
I thought it was great. I mean, a lovely interview. Um, fantastic to hear her talking so passionately about a film that you and I both feel so strongly about. Also really interesting that when she was saying that about, you know, running sets so people can get home, can see their family. Of course, the thing that, that goes into my head is Nora Ephron. I mean, it's really interesting how how much of what she was saying there echoes the thing that Nora Ephron always said about the way that she ran her sets because she understood that people had lives and families. And Nora Ephron actually went so far as to say the whole thing's a male conspiracy. The whole idea that you cannot run a movie set um, in, in that kind of way is a male conspiracy. But uh, I thought she was, um, yeah, I was wonderful. And it just makes me want to go and see the film again. Yes. And an interesting counterbalance maybe to the optimism of the, from our correspondents who started going to the movies again, just to hear yeah. someone who's clearly well-respected, knows how to make critically acclaimed successful films saying i can't see how we're going to get this back again yeah absolutely absolutely and her saying you know that there there have been these fans but this this goes against what you know how i would do something i mean i i was talking to jason isaacs about this recently and he actually sounded much more in the mariel helicamp that 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 he doesn't know how or when anything is going to sort of start. I mean, I think we, we are in uncharted territory, as everybody knows, and I, I have no idea how it's going to pan out. I, I, I really don't. In the meantime, we can enjoy the movies that have been made before all this stuff uh, started. And here's uh, an interesting movie coming next, which we've both seen. Take it away. Yeah, so this is The Vast of Night, which is on Amazon Prime next week. It comes to Amazon Prime next week. First-time director Andrew Patterson from a script by James Montague and Craig Sanger, starring Sierra McCormick and Jake Horowitz. Um, so the story is like towards the end of the 1950s, skies of uh, New Mexico. It's, so there's that weird kind of end of an era thing. And the whole thing is framed at the beginning as an episode of Paradox Theatre. So you see us going into a television show that looks kind of like, you know, Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, that kind of thing. And um, essentially, there's just sort of pre-American graffiti feel to everything. We meet these two characters, uh, one of whom is the local radio DJ. I mean, they're both young, but one of whom uh, does a local radio show, the other of whom runs the, uh, the telephone exchange around all the other stuff about doing their, you know, the usual stuff that they have to do as as young people. And he dreams of getting out and going somewhere else. She's kind of the opinion that she is stuck where they are. And the whole thing takes place in the course of one night. It begins when she's got a new tape recorder and uh, it begins with a, a game. Everybody's there. And he's showing her how to work the tape recorder. We have this very, very sort of long sequence in which they appear to be sort of talking across each other. The cameras are following them. And then she goes to the telephone exchange. He goes to the radio station and he starts to hear funny noises and she starts to experience strange things at the telephone exchange. Here's a clip. Number, please. Sorry for the wait. Number, please. Okay, I'll connect you. I'm not sure. No, you're the first one to... Yes, we'll let them know. Thank you. Number, please. Yes, we're notifying Highway Patrol. Uh, we'll relay any news to you. Thank you, thank you. Number, please. Sorry for the wait. All right, thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. I know it's not a hugely sort of explanatory clip, but that's the clip that we had. So essentially, people are ringing up saying something's going on. There's something in the sky. And then between them, they kind of have to figure out what it is because there is this strange noise that she hears on the telephone and he starts hearing on his, uh, on his radio broadcast. And then people start ringing in saying, I know what that noise is. And the story starts to unfold. Now, the really interesting thing about the film is 
It's made for a tiny amount of money. It is really brilliantly shot by uh, the DP is M.I. Lytton Menz, who has an illustrious career, done a whole load of stuff. But there are sequences in the film in which the camera travels what you think of impossible length through this small town from one location to another in seemingly unbroken takes. There are lengthy sort of uh, conversations that carry on and overlap and flow into it. So, so just from a filmmaking point of view, just the organisation of it is kind of breathtaking. But what's really great is that the film starts out being quite alienating. As I said, you sort of go in through this television show. At the beginning, you can't quite figure out who the characters are. You're always behind them. And then it's when the camera settles, when the action settles, and the story starts to unfold when he's in the radio station, that you find that you've been drawn into it. And the best thing about it is, it's a familiar story, you know, 1950s, New Mexico, stuff in the sky, people saying there's something in the sky. Okay, we've we've all seen movies about alien sightings before, but it's to do with the fact that the story is told so well. In fact, at one point, the film almost stops while somebody tells a story within a story, which is the kind of thing that often would completely put me off, because I know I always go on about show, don't tell filmmaking. But there is a, a story told within the story that I just thought was really well done. It is, the more I think about it, the more impressed I am by the film. It is a, a really audacious work. And I know that you enjoyed it as well because it it sucks you in. It draws you in. At the beginning, you think this is tricksy and clever and, and you know, yes, it's virtuosic, but what's there? And then before you know it, you find yourself completely gripped by these characters. Plus, there is a whole thing going underneath, which is a socio-political theme, which is there, broiling away underneath it all. Is never kind of, you know, there's not flag waves or anything, but it's all there. And by the end of the movie, you realise that it had a lot more substance than you thought. There's a section quite early on where Jake Horowitz, who plays the, the radio presenter, is talking to Sierra McCormick, who's playing the telephone um, telephone operator yeah and she says won't we get into trouble if we do this and he says i don't care it makes good radio and i know this <laughs> just makes me out as being very shallow but when you've got that all of all of those things are true and the music is great it's like a philip glass score which obviously they couldn't afford but it's 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 fan, it's fantastic but they clearly love the 50s they love the cars they love the microphones You've never seen a jack plug field as sexy as the one that is operated in the bastard <laughs> night. You know, I, I thought I thought it was lovely. It's like a radio script written by Aaron Sorkin, and um, I thought I thought it was terrific. Yes, I loved it. And also, and also, just one other thing, I just want to ask you about it because there are some there are whole sections where there's nothing on the screen at all. It's gone to black. There's still audio yeah. running, and I thought, oh, I've obviously got an early print here and they're going to add something in at this point but you had the same and that's the way that's the way the movie is it goes to black forever i believe so but i would also remind you of the time that um i watched uh, the mark uh, evans film trauma and i watched it with james king and uh, afterwards james king said to me that film didn't make any sense at all i said oh don't be stupid well, of course it made sense it was non-linear and then it turned out that they'd shown the reels in the wrong order and that james was right it didn't make any sense i had just imposed order upon Thank chaos where where can I watch The Vast of Night again? So it comes to Amazon Prime next week, but we're doing it ahead of next week. So so TV movies of the week. So we put all these up um, on our socials. This is all subscription-free television. This week's offerings include Heat, Citizen... This is not a bad list. In fact, 
This is, this is, you don't need to watch anything else. Heat, Citizen Kane, Arrival, Top Hat and Snowpiercer. And if you're listening on Saturday, apologies, some of these will already have been on the television, but uh, may be available on demand. First of all, The Ginger Luke says Green Mile. Oh, I didn't mention that. A beautiful film that doesn't even reveal its supernatural elements until about an hour in. Powerful, disturbing at times, but overall beautiful, great piece of cinema. Charlotte says Slow West has such an unexpected and moving ending, showing us how many lives were carelessly lost through the story, which acts as a commentary on the Western colonisation and male entitlement. Stuck with me more than almost anything else I've seen in the past decade. Dan goes for Snowpiercer, essentially high rise on a train. He says great direction, pace and acting seemed like a video game at times i.e. fighting through levels to get to the boss, but great fun. Annika Ruff says, What a week. Arrival and Spotlight are my two favourite films of the last decade. Each get better on repeat viewings. Snowpiercer was a wonderful introduction for me to director Bong and was such an original concept. Beast is also a hidden gem, kept me guessing throughout. Jack says, Arrival is not just the best film on television this week, but the best film of the past decade. I'll be uh, aiming to catch Beast. Uh, Lauren Wood, go... Uh, got to go with Arrival on a personal level. I saw it on the big screen on a first date almost four years ago. We're still together to this day. A brilliant movie. Maybe couples who speak to aliens together really do stay together. Stick what, together. <laughs> which will be our TV movies of the week? Well, I mean, as you said, it's it's a ridiculous list. So I'm going to just say Heat, Michael Mann, which incidentally you could have put in that list of remakes because technically he is an uncredited remake of Michael Mann's TV movie L.A. Takedown. Um, so heat because of that spotlight because it really is great and I had gone into it thinking it would be a bit dry but it was brilliant Kong Skull Island um, the Jordan Vogt Roberts film um, I'm a big fan of Jordan Vogt Roberts not least because I absolutely loved uh, Kings of Summer and there's a cast connection between Kings of Summer and Monos Arrival of course and see if you've seen it already see it again because it just gets better every time you see it Top Hat I would. I, I want to flag up Top Hat because I think that's brilliant. That's at uh, ten to three in the afternoon on Monday on BBC Two and Beast. Absolutely nine at night on Thursday on Film Four. Again, a film which was too little seen and should be seen by more people. I do think Arrival is one of those. I think it's probably in my top five films of all time. I think because the yeah, the almighty twist, which you know about, obviously once you've finished the film, you go and watch it again and you go, okay, this is even better the second time and better the third time. Anyway, t- when, when have you? When's Arrival on? By the way, can I just Arrival is on. I'm sorry, I didn't do all the time. So Arrival is on nine at night on Tuesday on Film Four. Excellent. TV movies of the week so bad they're bad. The worst films on subscription free television. Sarah Miles, The Last Airbender. No contest, just. The Last Airbender. It turned a vibrant, clever, well-written cartoon with developed and interesting characters in a fascinating world into a bland, badly acted, badly shot and dumb waste of an opportunity. Mr Higgs says, Blumenek, shots fired, Pitch Perfect 3 is definitely the worst of the three, but it does not deserve to be in any worst movie of the week list ever. Black Dog says, Godzilla from 97 had the tagline size does matter well apparently not when you can lose a 500 foot tall lizard in a city while flying a helicopter because it ran around a corner rain drenched fish smelling rubbish and finally richard hyde where we started the last airbender by a long shot i'm not surprised people are voting for the other movie most people probably never bothered watching it watching it to see how bad it was i've not watched an m night film since what's the tv movie of the week that's so bad it's bad 
Well, I mean, I'm going to go for Godzilla. Um, if you haven't watched an M. Night movie since, you've missed actually some really interesting films. But Godzilla is brilliant. And what was that phrase that was used? Fish-smelling... <laughs> Rain-drenched, fish-smelling fish rubbish. Fish-smelling rubbish. <laughs> there you go. That is up there with your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberry. When, when can yeah, I avoid? When film. can I avoid Godzilla? You can avoid that at a quarter to three in the afternoon on Sunday on Channel Five. Okay. Before we finish, of course, we're going to do our thanks for listening. We have decided uh, a few weeks ago that we would finish every show while this whole thing is carrying on with a Tom Hanks moment. He's our spiritual leader. Uh, but before we get there, uh, Mark has another review for you because this is new. Yeah, The County, which is uh, an Icelandic movie. Uh, uh, the uh, Inga, who is uh, running a farm with her husband, her husband unexpectedly dies in a kind of vaguely suspicious road accident, and she's struck with grief, but grief soon turns to anger at the co-op, the cooperative who run everything in the area that she works, this remote farmland. And she comes to believe that actually they are no longer a cooperative that are there to protect the community. They are, in fact, a mafia-like monopoly. And there is some suggestion that somehow there was something going on between her husband and the co-op. So first she takes to the to, to, to the internet. She writes a blog on Facebook in which she accuses them of being like the mafia. Then she takes her protest even further. She uses, um, she sprays milk on the side of the co-op. She tries to get everybody else to form a new organization, a new union. Um, it's written and directed by Grima Haglarsson who made uh, Rams, which I absolutely loved in 2015. The central character in it, um, uh, who is played by Anishron uh, Egelsdotter, has been compared in some places to uh, the central character from Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. But in fact, I think there's more of a tonal similarity between this and Woman at War, which is a film that I really loved, came out a couple of years ago, another sort of David and Goliath battle against seemingly unstoppable forces. Brilliant performance by Sigurd Sigur Jonsson as the head of the co-op. The fact that he's he doesn't come on like a sort of mafia don, but he's smiling and ingratiating in this kind of creepy way makes it all the worse. But one of the things that's interesting about the film is that I remember Bong Joon Ho saying it's it's a film it's a comedy it's a comedy without clowns and uh, it's a tragedy without villains and there is a sort of villainous thing going on, but the villains aren't played like villains except some of them who are, but not this particular character. Um, it's on that cusp between drama and melodrama. I mean, there is a kind of you can't handle the truth moment in which it does tip over into melodrama. It rides that very thin line between tragedy and comedy. And it looks astonishing, a very, very still camera work, in allowing these scenes to play out in an almost theatrical way. But again, very deadpan, very droll. Occasionally, some of the sort of the, the deadpan humour reminded me of Buster Keaton. And I, I, I really liked it very much. It's called The County and it is available on Curzon. And there's someone who's the head of the co-op in there, you said? It's head of the cooperative, yes. As she says, nothing here happens without the blessing of the cooperative. They were set up to protect the farmers, but now there's this situation whereby they appear to be exploiting the very community they were set up to protect. Because my local co-op isn't quite as threatening as that. No, that's because your local co-op is a shop. Uh, okay, so we haven't done the movie of the week yet, but I think let's do let's do our Hanks for Listening feature first, and then we can decide on our movie of the week. So I've got an interesting email from P. 
Peter in London's trendy Hackney region. That's how he, that's how he signs it. <laughs> Dear Strange and Unprecedented Times, along with the rest of your listeners, I've been delighted with the evolution of the Tom Hanks feature with which you end each show. And when a fellow Wittetani suggested the name, Hanks for Listening, I felt I really had to write in to let you know of something in a very similar vein. What with one thing and another, a group of friends and I gathered via a popular video conferencing app on the very first Tuesday of the UK lockdown with one simple aim, to find comfort in unusual circumstances. To this end, we decided to watch a film together and the choices of leading man proved predictably simple. Yes, we turned to none other than Tom Hanks, the reassuring actor's reassuring actor. We enjoyed the experience so much that we decided to repeat the process the next Tuesday. And the next, in a gathering that we have come to know as Hanksgiving. Each week, week we watch one of the great man's films, discuss its merits and determine its place on our leaderboard. After a week or two, I took the liberty of providing an accompanying feature of trivia about each movie and Tom's role in it. And being particularly interested in bad puns, we named it Hanks for the Memories. So this is just keeps on giving. In other circumstances, that might have been the end of it. But the feature proved very popular amongst the self-styled Hankaholics. And I was encouraged to create a theme tune for the section that I'm talking about. And I've attached it for you. We are currently eight movies into the... Hanksathon. Uh, we have watched A League of Their Own, Turner and Hooch, Splash, Dragnet, The Burbs, The Money, oh, The Money Pit, Big Joe versus the Volcano, with 80 plus Tom movies in reserve. We are hoping that the great man might join us one week and share his memories live, but we shall see. <laughs> Setting the bar high. Anyway, many thanks for your company both now and over the years, Peter in London's Trentney, Hackney region. Okay, so he sent us the music. So their Thanksgiving has been so successful uh, that he's now written this theme tune uh, to go with his self-styled trivia. So he sent it to us. So before we get to our Hanks for Listening moment, here's his music. When Tom Hanks looks back over his life, you know there'll still be one thing to decide. Which of his movies is the very best type? Is it the ones that make us laugh or the ones that make us cry? League of their own, it had a lot of potential But what about his questionable feminist credentials? And everybody loves a bit of Turner and Hooch If you overlook the fact that Tom was often out-acted by a pooch It was a lovely pooch In the 1980s, Tom caused a big splash Yeah, he won a few hearts and he made a lot of cash but his critics predicted that it couldn't last when he went for the serious roles. Philadelphia brought him dramatic respect, but we haven't got to it. We can't judge it yet. We're still plowing through terrible <laughs> films like Dragnet and the one with the volcano. So Tom, if you're listening and I hope that you are, would you please intervene? We're not got that I think a montage should go over this. I can just see pictures of various <laughs> Hanks movies edited into this.
bit of a kind of 80s power pop, Mark. That's very good. I like a bit of 80s power pop. I think that's really good. I enjoyed okay, that. Peter, thank you very much indeed for sending us that in. So it, it teases us up nicely uh, for today's Hanks for Listening. It comes from Andy, who says, Dear Max Wren and Max Melodramatic, I recently watched You've Got Mail and enjoyed its quaint old-fashioned view of the internet i can't believe it was made one year before the matrix i mean really that's that is interesting i was also struck by the godfather speech and thought it might be suitable hanks for listening uh, please give a what's up to my brother matt currently waiting on test results but with one thing and another i'm sure he will be fine when we can save lives by lying on the sofa and binging on movies and box sets what is more fitting than tom advising us all to go to the mattresses to say go to the mattress. What? What does that mean? It's from the Godfather. It means you have to go to war. Mm-hmm. Oh. At war. It's not personal, it's business. It's not personal. It's business. It's business. Recite that to yourself every time you feel you're losing your nerve. I know you worry about being brave. Don't. This is your chance. Fight. Fight. Fight to the death. Fight to the death. That was definitely showbiz typing. Because nobody actually types like that. No, no, absolutely. It was just (laughs) someone going, hang on, I've just got a few things to say over here. One of the things things that's a great pleasure for us is that when we're doing this stuff by remote, often, you know, because it's being controlled by puppet masters elsewhere, if you know that things are going wrong when you can suddenly hear furious typing in the background and they're sending each other notes going, these people are terrible. Honestly, for an extra extra 10 quid, we could have got Ant and Deck. Why are we using them? Uh, anyway, Andy, thank you very much Steve, for the suggestion. We'll do another Hanks for listening uh, next week. Send your suggestions to mayo at bbc.co.uk. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Mark, what is your film of the week? I'm going to go for The County. I'm going to go for the vast of night. Uh, no, I'm not allowed one. Okay, it's the count. No, no, that's fine. Actually, uh, let's, let's do it. No, let's do let's do a joint uh, best film of the week. Okay, vast of night in the county. Okay, thanks very much indeed uh, for listening. There are extended versions of all, all that you've just heard. Yes, we waffle on even more if you download our totally top podcast, which is available from BBC Snouds. Thank you very much indeed for listening. This is Five Live. Well, that was uh, that was the uh, the main body of the show, and very good it was too. Though the longer this goes on, Mark, I'm beginning to realise there is a there is a weakness to my spare room studio, Egton Five, as I'm calling it, because it's got the Egton Five logo, which I stole yeah. from Radio One when they destroyed Egton House, part of the BBC. Uh, did you, really, did the, you do that? I didn't yeah, know you yeah. did that. That's yeah. that's really nostalgic of you. I prized it off the uh, off the wall. Uh, it was only going to get destroyed, so I think it's perfectly fine. But anyway, I as think the sun, no, what? But I'm sorry, sorry. No, I just I'm I'm touched by that because because I was in Egton the same time that you were in Egton, and 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 it is funny because I actually hadn't thought of I hadn't thought of Egton House for years because it wasn't back in the nineties that I was there, and it's you've just brought back a whole a whole kind of memory that I had completely forgotten about. It was a dump. It, it was great. We don't actually it call was, this. We don't call it the spare room. We the spare room is now called Egton Five. That's for the, does anybody have to have that explained to them? Do you say, well, interestingly enough, if you well, were, if anyone uh, came into the house, we'd have to explain it. But as no one's been in the house for months, 
uh, and they're not likely to be staying overnight, then no one, uh, I haven't explained it to anyone just yet. Recently, does, does sorry to do this, does, does Egdon House no longer exist? Correct. And the road destroyed. that it, is it Clipston Street that it's on, that it was on? No, no, this is now very, very local specific behaviour. No, I know, Clipson I know, but I'm just, it's just, I'm just, I'm just back in my, I'm just doing the Clipson how much of my life. The old Clipson Street is where the Clipson Street moved, Cafe is. It moved to Yalding House, which is another BBC property, which is now a trendy restaurant and cafe where the music is too loud and the seats are uncomfortable. And <laughs> that's, that, that's in Clipston Street. Okay, so where was Egton? What was it the was, street it was on? Well, it was top end of Portland Place. I mean, it was next to the church and just before you went into Broadcasting House. Oh, hang on. So am I confusing? Which, where, was, where was Radio 1 when you and I... When, when the one when I had to walk to go down into the basement to do it? That's, your, that's Yielding House. Egton okay. House was before that. Oh, OK. So, I'm, so why do I know Egton House then? Was that where Radio 5 came from? No. Radio 5 never came from Egypt. Okay, I definitely... Well, it might, okay, it, it, it might have done. The Grams Library was in the basement. Yeah. It may well be that you found a studio suite somewhere for your radio. I definitely business. did stuff in Egton House. And then it was Yolding House that we that we worked in together. And then we moved into new broadcasting houses. I'm sorry, I know. I, if, if anyone's listening, sorry about this. This is just... I was I was told that one good way of um, keeping the grey matter working was to try to remember things. I've got, I've tried to get out of the habit of googling stuff. Um, that that I that I was told that what you need to do is it's like a muscle. It's like you know if you don't exercise you get flabby, which I have done obviously. But my so I'm trying. If somebody says, "Do you remember that thing?" I try and remember it now. So for example, when we were talking about Tom Hanks. And I, I just thought, you know, if you if you all sit together and watch a Tom Hanks movie, is it called Hankering Down? And then okay. that led me. Thank you very much. Yes. That then led me to think because of the thing Hanks, you know, uh, Hanks Giving and Hanks for the Memory and all that stuff. I remember that there was a live album called Hanks, which was I couldn't remember who it was by. And, um, and then our top production staff pointed out that it was the live album by Stiff Little Fingers. And it, Hanks was indeed, it was called Hanks because that was when they said thanks at the end of a song. Hey, it sounded like Hanks. So, in fact, the word Hanks to, has meant thanks for some and time. And let's bring this round beautifully, 360 degrees, as one of the most yeah. surreal moments of my time at Radio 1 in Egton House was seeing Jake Burns, lead singer of... Uh, the aforementioned Stiff Little Fingers, coming in. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm applying for a job. And he got a job as assistant producer for Dave Lee Travis's weekend programme. So Jake Burns was in Egton House, Stiff Little Fingers, producing Dave Lee Travis. There you go. Well, whilst he was in Stiff Little Fingers? Oh, I don't know. He was in and out. I don't know. Uh, To be honest, I suspect he probably wasn't in the band at the time. But that was a most most surreal thing. Wow. Didn't didn't Fergal Sharkey end up being um, uh, a big wig for for PRS? A big wig in the British music business, yeah. Yes, yes. He's a a very influential and important person, isn't he? Should we get on with the... uh, the Yes, if you think I've done done my mental workout now, I I can have a drink. So we're going to do DVDs of the week fairly uh, uh, fairly shortly, um, but also it's it's the week for our well done you. Uh, yeah. This is where we just suggest a movie which has a use certificate, which everybody can watch. It's necessary. It's not necessarily pour les enfants, but it is pour tout le monde. Uh, <laughs> it, is, it is the use certificate. What is our well done you for this week? Okay, so our well done you for this week is actually it's a surprise because it's um, 
1967 version of Far From The Madding Crowd. Now, oh, okay. Th- okay, so this came up not so long ago, although I say that's actually five years ago. When the when the new yes I know from my in my head that's not so long ago when the new version came out I think you interviewed Kerry Mulligan for the new version am I right in thinking that yes you'd be right okay. in thinking that and it's Kerry Mulligan and Matthias Sco- Matthias Schoenarts whose name I can never pronounce uh, properly and uh, directed by Thomas Vinterberg and just before that version came out they reissued uh, the original version from uh, 1967, which is uh, Judy Christie and Terence Stamp. And um, and I saw that just before I saw the remake. And, I mean, I thought that I thought the original was, was, was absolutely astonishing. And, of course, one of the most famous things about it is that it's shot by Nick Rogue. Nick Rogue is the cinematographer on it. And it's um, so it's Terence Stamp, Alan Bates, Peter Finch, uh, Judy Christie, uh, Judy Christie as, uh, you know, as the central character and it's her on the poster everybody else that's surrounding her and it is a great film and it's you know it is it's well directed um Frederick Raphael did the screenplay which is fairly true to the source and it's thought of as a a pretty much you know faithful adaptation and it's directed by uh, John Schlesinger but more importantly than that it's shot by Nick Rogue and when you watch it again after all this time because you know knowing about Nick Rogue then became the great visionary di- director who gave us things like Don't Look Now and The Man Who Fell to Earth and Walk About and all those films. When you see the work that he does as the cinematographer on Far From the Madding Crowd, you go, okay, well, this is clearly, this is a, this is a directorial mind, uh, you know, at play. And what's really fascinating is that one of the most famous sequences in, in well, in both versions of the film, there is a sequence in which uh, somebody waving a sword around is essentially a kind of a seduction technique. And in the, in the new version of it, there was a, a long discussion about how, you know, the new, the, the new version, the most recent version is rather more um, uh, gropey, I think is the best way of explaining it. In the original version, what happens is that Julie Christie essentially watches Terence Stamp wave his sword around. And it is one of the most, provocative uh, sort of cinematic experiences brilliantly shot by Nick Rogue and I looked there's an interview that I found with Terence Stamp in which he said yeah well basically what happened was um, we did it originally and it was done really really quickly and it, and it wasn't very good and Nick Rogue said to me you know this scene really this is the centre of the piece the whole thing and it's really got it so what he did was every time they had any time free or any time spare Nick Rogue would go off with Terence Stamp and they would shoot a bit more of it and they would, and it became this whole sort of central sequence. And it's, I mean, it's really, it's a guy, you know, running around and waving a sword around. But it's provocative and it's racy and it's naughty. I don't and want it's, this kind of thing. No, the well, okay, whole point so, of a well done you is that it's a you. So here's the thing: I therefore was surprised to find out that the 1967 Far from the Madding Crowd had a U certificate. Um, and I was I looked it up on the BBFC website. If you haven't been to the BBFC website before or recently, do go. It is it is absolutely terrific. It turns out that there there are some cuts made to various versions, but the original certification uh, when the film first came out, uh, it was indeed rated a U certificate in 1967, and it has stayed a U certificate uh, ever since. Although there have been, now it looks like on uh, video, there have been trims of between 12 seconds, 26 seconds, 24 seconds. I'm not sure what they are. Quite often that sort of thing is to do with 
historical stuff like horse falls. Um, so I'm not sure what those cuts are, but the original version in 1967 is use certificate, and it has always been a use certificate film. And and I started thinking, you know, this I mean, it's a really great film, and it's really really interesting. But blimey, I'm I, I mean, I, I'm surprised that it's a use certificate. At around the same time, we got an email, which I believe you have, Simon. Yes, yes, that's right. By the way, where can I see that? Or is it just widely available? It's widely available. Widely available. I mean, it is widely available. Yes, I got an email from Martin Impey, okay, yeah. who says, um, I would like, if I may, to propose a spin-off to the Well Done You section of the programme, possibly okay. called something like, what the hell were you thinking, <laughs> as in the letter U, in which films which never should have been classified as you, but were, are discussed. The film that moves me to write is 1945's Leave Her to Heaven, starring Gene Tierney in a rare example of a Technicolor film noir. Despite proudly displaying its universal certificate from the BBFC, it is chock full of behaviour both aberrant and (laughs) abhorrent, as Tierney's jealous and possessive nature wreaks havoc on those around her to the point of one of the most unsettling cold-blooded scenes of murder in cinema. All right, it could probably be defined as manslaughter, but the sheer coercion and intent involved in the death of a vulnerable teenager erases the difference to me. She's endlessly vindictive and manipulative to the point of harming an unborn child and framing others for a murder that never happened. She's almost as scary as Catherine Byron in Black Narcissus. How this disturbathon <laughs> was ever granted the mildest certificate of them all boggles the mind. It's essentially Gone Girl made under the Hayes Code, which is the kind of the moral code in the American film industry. Thanks for all the quarantainment and hello through the letterbox to Jason. I think this is, is a really, really smart idea. Yeah. So basically, so uh, so so to the, to the title of it is is what the hell were you thinking? Uh, no. Yes. The okay. You? So it's what the hell were you thinking? You capital thinking. U. These are okay. U certificate movies, which clearly have been uh, completely miscertificated, if that's the, the, the correct verb. So yeah. it should probably be at least an A or a double A. Yeah. I, I think I'm right in remembering that when Splash first came out, it was a U. And Splash is a naughtier film than a U certificate would now allow. So we welcome your suggestions for yes. what the hell were you thinking um, so obviously we're staying with you know films that are legitimately allowed to be watched by anybody, but ones that make really you go shouldn't be really that's right really really and on Splash Daryl Hannah's because uh, that's now on the Disney Plus channel there was a big fuss and bother because um, there's a sequence where she walks out of the sea and you see her bottom but you don't on the Disney Plus version they sort of covered it with extra hair which sounds is that right revolting. yeah 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 okay but, splash is definitely i know i'm just checking this while we do this because obviously we're not in a in a time splash has definitely now been upgraded to a pg but yeah i that have feels a memory right no no yeah but i have a memory i'm just going to check this that when it first came out it was oh no apparently it was always a pg okay i, I misremember it being a you apparently it was always a pg that's weird because I remember the film being a U, but anyway, no, apparently Splash was a PG originally. Okay, so if, anyway, if there are any suggestions that occur to you for movies which are used but patently should not be, uh, then it'd be it'd be quite nice to find the movie that, by common consent, is like the high, deserves maybe a fifteen certificate or something. Yeah. You know, but, but you know, even even <laughs> for a PG, Splash is pretty 
There's that whole thing with John Candy, you know, I got my letter published in Penthouse magazine. <laughs> I'm okay. If anyone's interested, I'm sorry I could do the whole of Splash, but I won't. Yeah, but sadly, it's no time because we're right out of tape here. So let's do our DVDs of the week. Hey, is that Mark? It certainly is. I don't know about you, Mark, but I can't wait to visit other people's houses again. Who right. knows when that will be? I tell you whose house I'm most certainly not going to visit when, okay. you know, one thing and another is all over. MC mm. Hammers. I went there in the poptastic 90s. He wouldn't let me touch anything. <laughs> <laughs> that joke is for our older listeners. <laughs> how's your How's your home studio going, Mark? It's fine. Why? Well, you know, people might occasionally hear members of my family messing around in their bedrooms, uh, as we heard earlier, but they won't hear my pet pterodactyl using the loo. Do you know why? Um, because no. the P is silent. Thank you very much indeed. It's, uh, <laughs> you need to know how to spell pterodactyl. Just, yeah, but I was actually having to work that joke out. Now I can laugh at it, but it seems like the moment's passed. And of course, there were pterodactyl and the dinosaurs had a pterodactyl and the dinosaurs. That's right. Yeah. Record, which was fantastic. Anyway, anyway, and also someone shouted up at my window just before we started here. Someone shouted up at my window from the street uh, just this morning. Actually, they must have seen my glum face. It was it was very uncouth guy. He shouted, "Oi, Mayo, cheer up! It could be worse. You could be stuck in an underground hole full of water." Anyway, I know he meant well. See, that's, that's, it's a written, it's a written joke. It's rather, a written, it's I mean, a I written. I gave it, I gave it everything. You, 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 you gave everything to that. You gave it 110%. And I had what to did you do in return? I, I had to message producer Simon just because I didn't quite get it. But then he said, I, I know he means well, and then the well is in inverted commas. So anyway. Uh, I'm surprised he didn't to, do a sort of Ringu gag, but there we go. Okay. To move on to this week's keepers, Charlotte Barker, Little Women. It's the warm, wholesome hug of a film we could all do with right now. Plus, everyone in it is very beautiful. Uh, Rachel Ball, <laughs> Little Women, is just is incredible. That, is I, that now a thing? Everyone yeah. in it is very beautiful. I do want to watch it again. But the bit where Joe sobs, I'm so lonely at the end, might be a bit much for people self-isolating. Jake Sniper, what a name. Moscow on the Hudson and suddenly I'm in the co-op. That co-op. Around the corner from where I grew up. I'm standing in a small corner section trying to find a video I've not seen. Leonie Horton, and then we danced, absolutely floored me. I was in physical pain after watching it. An absolute gorgeous film. Simon Howard says, Little Women, of course, but Bad Boys for Life is easily the best bad boys and far better than it had any right to be. Worth checking out for any who missed it at the cinema. Lauren Wood, I have to say, Little Women for DVD. I'm not one for period drama based on 19th century literature. But what Ger uh, Greater Gerwig does to modernise yet traditionalise it is outstanding. And it's worth the watch for Florence Pugh's brilliant performance alone. What is our DVD of the week? Well, I'm absolutely going for Little Women. Not because everyone in it is beautiful. Um, and uh, I, I just think it's a fantastic, a fantastic adaptation of that story. And uh, I know it's been told before. In, in, in the cinema and rather brilliantly but this really does manage to do what, what was that phrase that was just used to modernize but also traditionalize it at the same yes, time modernize and traditionalize absolutely great um i cannot look at the cast list without going timothy chalamet just 
Timothy, Timothy Chalamet. Why are you Timothy. doing that? You sound like a David Williams character now. Well, it's, it's, it's just whenever I look at his name written down, Timothy Chalamet. Anyway, this seems that as Timothy Chalamet, anyway, he's a in a whole it. new uh, range of French accents. Uh, it's clearly time that we finished because this thing has been going on long enough. Thank you very much, Steve, for downloading this top <laughs> podcast from BBC Snouts, and we'll try and do another one for you next week. Can we? Can we just because for people who've been with us since the beginning, can you just give us an update on how Child Three's um uh, thing went since we did start with it going? Is it still? Is it still going? He's still going. I don't think I should interrupt him. Can I update you next yeah, week? Yeah, go on. No, interrupt him. I can't interrupt him. He's in the middle. He's writing an essay. You've already, you've already interrupted him once. Just interrupt him again. It's going to take 10 seconds. Well, he might, if he fails, then it'll be your fault. It'll be our fault. Oi, child three. Child three. <laughs> Oi. <laughs> Bang on the wall like you did last time. Right. I did it. Okay. Boy, <laughs> child three. Yeah. How's it going? Uh, it's going about as well as it was before. Great. <laughs> it hasn't got any better. It's going as well as, as we it heard. was before. We all heard. We all oh, heard. Okay. Right. There you go. That's the latest exam news from Lake Wobegon. Thank you very much for listening. Further updates next week. <laughs> BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. When the world gets you down, music can help you through. In 2017, my life took a bit of a bad turn. And the way I coped was by listening to as many records from the previous year as I could. I'm James Acaster, and I believe that 2016 is the greatest year for music ever. I've been listening to it backwards. Backwards? I've been listening to it backwards. So on my podcast, me and my comedian friends will discuss my favourite albums of that year in order to convince every single one of you too. That's a classic album right there. James A. Caster's Perfect Sounds. Listen now on BBC Sounds.